Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Matthew Taylor from the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to the final event in our Rethinking Education series, where we've been gathering practitioners, policymakers, and innovators to discuss whether the challenges that emerged during the COVID-19 crisis might in fact be opportunities to build new areas of consensus across political divides in teaching and learning, and ultimately to create a better, fairer education system for all our young people. In today's event, event, we're reflecting on the critical support role that schools have played in their local communities during the pandemic, especially in the most disadvantaged areas. The idea that schools are self-contained institutions responsible only for academic development is increasingly at odds with reality. So how do we build more sustainable models that recognize schools as civic organizations, as anchor institutions, essential to the health and welfare of young people, their families, and the wider community? Well, we've got a terrific panel with us today to help us explore these questions. First up, it's my great pleasure to introduce Joy Medeiros. Joy is global CEO of Oasis Community Learning. Established in 2004, Oasis began with three secondary schools in Enfield, Grimsby and Immingham, and has since grown into one of the largest multi-academy trusts in England, a family of 52 primary, secondary and all through academies in five regions across the country, all united by a vision to create exceptional education at the heart of the community. Welcome, Joy, and over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, really great to be here today. I think it's a great question. Uh, so I'm looking forward to the conversation. But first, just a bit about Oasis. I hope you don't mind me just giving a little bit of background and sort of our hub model, which I'm going to talk about, how schools fit into that hub model, um, and then what 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 did, the, did that mean in terms of COVID? So Oasis Festival is a global community development organisation. Actually, we've got 35 years of history. Uh, 2004 relates to our work with academies. And we work in a number of countries around the world. In this country, we've got over 40 community hubs uh, in which we deliver a combination of housing, education, health and loads of different community provision. And just interestingly, about 18 months ago, we were awarded the opportunity to set up the first youth prison, uh, which is called a secure school, uh, which we're going to call Oasis Restore. Uh, but the purpose of Oasis, the reason why we exist is for community transformation and to bring those excluded from community back into community. And our model for this is what I've already said, the Oasis Community Hub. And its purpose is to serve the needs of as many people in that community and also the whole person. So we're sort of mind, body and spirit um, approach to life because we're all joined up people. So we need to respond to joined up needs. In the UK, our hub services include um, a school or schools. So in any one hub, there will be a school or a number of schools, um, a wide range of youth provision, debt advice, food banks, housing advice, and, some, and in some cases, actual housing, coffee shops. We've got a couple of two, three city farms, holiday clubs, drop-ins, knit and natters, volunteering, We've got a shop, for example, in Bristol, where the mums who are part of the school have made the craft that gets sold in the, in the shop. We've got churches and so on. Um, the point is that uh, an Oasis community is simply an integration of as many services that are needed by the community. We're not, we don't we seek not to sort of duplicate those, um, but it's a set of services that are committed to sort of responding to as much need as possible. Um, so, and in amongst all of that, of course, there would be also a, a hub charity um, in order to generate fundraising because we need to fund the other services. It's not all obviously about public service delivery. So, but the point is really um, that whatever part you play in Oasis, um, our whole purpose is community transformation. So we're not just about any one of those things. So housing, education or youth work, we're about the whole thing. So we've actually got 53 academies now in, in this country and uh, a mixture of all through secondaries and primaries. Um, but the purpose of our education is about community transformation. So when we say we have schools, what we say is our, our purpose is around community transformation. So of course we recognize that schools are about excellent education, but we're clear that we, that can't happen 
on its own. It can't happen without community transformation. Equally, community transformation is not possible without excellent education. The two are completely connected in our view. Um, so we all know that a brilliant school, uh, that, that even however brilliant a school is, it can't be sustained without the support of its community. Um, and, and that's what we're trying to, where we're trying to get to. Uh, we know that communities and schools can't exist where, where, there's, where the housing's no good, where people haven't got enough to eat, where they're not, they don't feel safe, where transport doesn't work or where there are no jobs and so on. So many of the schools that we all all trying to deal with are dealing with generations of deprivation and yet we still expect them to achieve those great results when in truth the reality is that the experience, the day-to-day -day experience of many students is poor and very limited in terms of their aspiration. So that's, that's what we're trying to be about. So two more things very quickly to say because I know we're, we're short for time. Um, our, importantly, our hubs are as much about being as they are about doing so that we make a big point about them being delivered through the lens of our ethos. So it's not just about action and delivery, it's about the way things are done, every bit as much as what is done. So even though, you know, we'd often be regarded as a mat, as a service provider, which I hate that name, I hate that concept. Uh, we hope we don't behave like that. We are, we are there to provide services, but this is about a two-way relationship. It's not about being governed by computer says no. This has to be about values first from our point of view, and that governs everything and the way in which we do everything. It's not just about systems and procedures. And finally, finally, when it comes to the hub, we have a hub council of local people who govern the hub. So this is not about doing to, it's about working with. So we've got about 40 of these, these hubs all at different stages, and uh, we are very keen that we can get them to develop you know, stronger relationships. So what about COVID? Well, the truth is uh, we didn't actually do very much different during COVID. We, we intensified what we were doing. So what we did is we brought the community teams around uh, the school in particular and really worked on three things. Uh, one was about food, obviously. The next is about friendship and the other was around safety. And we did the, all the things that lots of people did, food banks, uh, you know, work and support for the children outside of their studies. Um, but it, we, the, but the, the point was that we used the structure that we had and we really found that that worked. And then coming back very finally to your big question about rethinking education, which I think is brilliant. I just simply finished by saying that uh, whilst the, the question's really relevant, I don't actually think it's the right question to start with. I think the right question to start with is what's the vision for the community? Um, and then we'll get to the right place in terms of what's the right way to think about rethinking education, because education needs to come in the context of the community. So that's Oasis. Joy, that's amazing, inspirational. It's a kind of vision of, uh, of the future. Well, I hope it's a vision of the future. C can I ask you, from the perspective of school leaders who might be watching this and possibly thinking, well, could I go on that kind of journey in my trust or in my school? What do you think is the biggest challenge in being a school leader within, a, within an organisation which has this emphasis on community development and enrichment? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, and it's one that we've really worked on over the last 15, 20 years. Um, so, so obviously, uh, I say obviously, but school leaders want the best for their children they want the best outcomes they want the best grades they want the best absolutely possible for each child and that is fully understood so the hard thing is to is the culture it's the it's the thinking beyond that although when and i'm not saying for a minute the teachers and school leaders wouldn't see that they do see that they've got a you know confined budget and they are focused that they're, 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 they're judged on those outcomes. That's the way we think in the country. That's how we define education, which is why I think we need to start in a different place. Um, but I, I do know that having worked um, with many of our school leaders who are still here with us from the start, they understand that actually, unless we address some of the community issues, um, pretty much everything becomes intervention, not systemic. And therefore, actually, you just keep on pouring it in every year and not changing the circumstances that the children uh, are, are in, and which affect 
uh, their performance and their progress. Um, so it's about helping, encouraging uh, and supporting school leaders to work into a different mindset and a different way of working, which has been the biggest struggle, but, but very rewarding. Thank you, Joel. I got so many other questions, but we'll wait until the panel later on and hopefully we can bring you back in. I'll definitely bring you back in. So our second speaker is Joan Delande, who is a head teacher of Kingford Community School, a community school serving 11 to 16 year olds in East London, uh, a pupil group from richly diverse ethnic and cultural backgrounds. Joan has served on a number of government advisory bodies. Uh, is a founding trustee of the Chartered College of Teaching and has been named three times by the Evening Standard as one of London's most influential educational thinkers. In 2017, Joan was awarded an OBE for her services to education. Joan, welcome and over to you. Thank you for inviting me to share the perspectives from my own school. And I think it's true that the culture and ethos of schools meant that many were in a position to support families to overcome adversities through togetherness, make the most of community focus and community-led approaches when the pandemic hit us. And through these things, schools have began the process of building community resilience so that school, school and the wider community is prepared for future crisis. Um, so in terms of what happened at Kingsford, Kingsford has always been a vital um, and has, has always been the centre of community and community has always been a vital aspect of school life for pupils and staff. I know that this is true for many schools in our country and the panic, pandemic and lockdown really tested the strength of our school and wider community. We had the implementation of new health and safety measures, the shift to online learning and online assessments, working remotely and coping with uncertainty, anxiety, grief and loss. And that was happening for everyone across the country. And at this time, schools found themselves in a situation where they actually became central to the community response and on a scale that was previously unthinkable. So against the backdrop of coronavirus, there have been many unexpected and potentially positive learning uh, curves and lessons for us as a member and as an integral part of the community. Through the vehicle of schools, including my own, local communities brought about invisible acts of good neighbourliness, donations and support, while the public sector and the government were developing their own response. There has been a significant change in the public's understanding of what their priorities should be and also of which jobs matter and of who is doing those jobs. And quite rightly, the British public have developed a deeper appreciation for the roles which schools and their staff play within communities. So while statutory bodies were working out their own course of action, schools re remained open and were being called upon by families to not only support their children, but also their families. And we were able to do that in many ways. For example, our form tutors had made daily phone calls to their tutor groups and there was follow-up for those who sought and needed support. Often this entailed conversations with parents who needed practical guidance about a range of matters, including housing, welfare and social services, as well as other domestic issues, including domestic violence. And I know that our school, like many other schools I know of, we were able to connect with parents and connect those parents with services and help the parents to actually uh, embark on making connections with the services in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have done otherwise because they didn't trust the services. And so they didn't behave as defensively as the school supported them to open those doors to aspects of support that they could reach out to and for which they were entitled. We also issued much information about where the food banks were, so parents could share the support and advice they received uh, from us with other groups and organisations that they are members of. The school was at the heart of a network that facilitated a grassroots response, which empowered people to do things for themselves within their, communi within their communities. 
all of us working in schools know that we have to work at a local level. And as we engage with communities and deliver services, we empower them. And when considering the service that a school delivers, most of the traditional focus is on the quality of education and academic outcomes. But I know that for schools, particularly for those with a demographic such as that of Kingsford, teaching pupils, and quite often their parents, to find solutions to the tests of life helps them to understand structures and processes with which they may be unfamiliar and is part and parcel of the work of the school. In terms of making the most of community focus and community-led approaches, acknowledging how school communities can empower and be embedded into core services is imperative. Too much hierarchy and inequality in how communities are served, combined with a lack of sufficient bonding and solidarity, can undermine the community. One of the fundamental facets of successful school leadership for my school and I know for all schools, is having leaders who truly invest in their locality. Being at the front line of supporting children to meet and overcome the challenges of city life means not only helping them, but also helping their wider community. Through this, schools played a significant role in helping communities come to terms during the pandemic with death, domestic violence, as well as grasp the prejudices which needed to be tackled and which often go unspoken in this country. Many of these came to the fore at the start of the pandemic, such as the issue of the impact of COVID-19 on Bane communities and the repercussions in the hearts and minds of young people following the death of George Floyd. In resource poor circumstances, school staff can support and address issues that statutory bodies are busy having focus groups about. Schools have to act quickly and, and with a collective hands-on practical response, which can be seen in the decisive actions that schools across the country took in relation to implementing the recovery curriculum and whole school frameworks to support the mental health and emotional well-being of pupils even in this time of constant flux. In my local authority, Newham, we have a fantastic programme called Head Start, which has a fantastic whole school response to supporting the mental health and well-being of young people. And the way that is structured means that it ripples out into supporting parents. So this has been another positive consequence of the pandemic in that local authorities are working even more closely with schools on these types of fronts. This collaboration allows for further development of processes to coordinate and grow resilience, better understand vulnerabilities and enhance preparedness to act quickly when needed. Observing the joy and happiness in the eyes of the masked pupils as they re-entered the school after the lockdown and as they reconnected with their peers was priceless. And as life begins to resemble what it was before the pandemic, school communities I know will build on the lessons learned. And it's important that we now begin to work to maintain our newfound community resilience and responses so that they become even richer beyond COVID-19. Thank you. Joan, thank you for that. And, and thank you for the brilliant work you've been doing. Um, in terms of things being different and learning the lessons that you've so vividly described, how important do you think will the accountability framework be? How important will it be, for example, that Ofsted are taking a more holistic and balanced view of the contribution that schools make and that the centre uh, too is able to judge schools in a more balanced way well, we, we know that um, Ofsted have got a focus, uh, a renewed focus on the curriculum in terms of how they make judgments about school. But the reality is at the moment, the Ofsted metrics really don't take sufficient account of community engagement and the additionality that some schools have to provide in order to enable and empower that not only the young people in their schools, but the community that serves that young people to make the most of the opportunities and benefits that the country has to provide. So in terms of their access to equality, 
unless Ofsted metrics are taking account of how schools make up opportunities and access to the, the vast prospects and possibilities that exist to improving lives, unless the metrics are looking at this. Um, schools that do this work recognize that it may continue to go and recognize, but this work is what makes and what allows young people to be able to flourish. Thank you, uh, Joan. Uh, Joan, you mentioned uh, Newham in your talk, and our next speaker is Kirsten Nodier, who is Head of Strategic Programmes for the London Borough of Newham, and has previously held director roles in a number of charities focused on supporting children, young people and families. Kirsten has a great deal of experience designing, developing, delivering family-focused provision, and one of the programmes she's currently leading in Newham is focused on the developing development of alternative provision for education in the borough to better support vulnerable young people and improve their life chances. So Kirsten, uh, Newham's already uh, had a positive uh, mention. Over to you. Thank you very much, Matthew. And um, thank you for those speakers that have already brought um, amazing contributions. Very interesting listening. Uh, so in Rethinking Education, I've kind of highlighted four key areas that I think are really important to consider. Um, and I'll talk through each of them in turn. So the first one is how do we look at education through a systemic and relational lens? Um, secondly, the importance of in-depth discovery work in doing so. Thirdly, the importance of designing solutions that matter to children, young people and their families. And fourthly, the importance of action and accountability. So I'll, I'll start off with looking at it through a systemic and relational lens. And I think there's been a, a couple of speakers that have alluded to how we look at educational improvement through uh, the eyes of the academic attainment and curriculum. But we all know that there's a lot more to children uh, than learning inside the school gates. And um, it, that impacts on them becoming a good citizen and building a stable and positive life and relationships. So when we're looking at rethinking education, we're using systems thinking, um, interrelated and independent parts, all affecting and impacting on young lives. And we need to understand that all these interactions are important and should be considered when we re-engineer education. Um, so in Newham, we took the approach very early on to think about how we could bring into the fold the contributions from uh, partner agencies, so police, health, children's social care. Um, and particularly, we've spoken a lot about uh, the community. So voluntary community and faith sectors, really important in terms of how we rebuild this offer. And most importantly, the children, young people and their families too. So spending time understanding um, what it means to them. All complex systems we know rely on people they can make or break a child's experience of an adult. So when we're thinking about things like pathways or processes or policy, they're all important, but even more important is that it is the people that the young people are going to be or will be interacting with. And so we're building this to ensure that those relational aspects are front and center of any redesign, and that's crucial. So secondly, moving into uh, in-depth discovery research, um, and, and for those of you that understand uh, or, or know of systems thinking and design, um, we really wanted to take a step back and not just dump in solutions or provisions or interventions and think, oh, we hope they work, um, really take a step back and understand the landscape um, and importantly, the key challenges and barriers in the system, and then the journey of the child or the young person and, and what's working well for them. So we spent two or three months uh, doing a piece of in-depth discovery work and identifying these key insights. So we looked at a whole load of data across the system, uh, different indicators of vulnerability, uh, particularly focused on our exclusions data and, um, and demand and trajectory for alternative provision. We ran a number of workshops, did interviews, discussions, all the things you do, and, and obviously then looked at research in the national picture um, and, and quite, um, you know, quite frequently spoke to other local authorities in other areas um, and our voluntary uh, community and faith sector as well uh, to look at what, what this looks like from different angles. And 
I think when organizations take a step back and spend three plus months on this discovery, you really start to understand the roots of the problems and those challenges. Um, and this, when you're building solutions or pathways or, or re-engineering education, that definitely combats any problems later on down the line during implementation, uh, because you generally find something that's better fit for purpose to kind of fill the gap of those challenges. I think uh, it was Joy earlier on that was speaking about, you know, understanding those root problems within the community uh, because that's really then going to determine how you build your education offer. So we came up with a, a, a number of very strong insights. Some of them are reflected nationally. Um, some of them are very particular to Newham and have not come up before, which is, which is very interesting. And really crucial for us at this point to, to you know, include children and parents' voices in you know, how we understand education, how it's experienced, but also then how we rebuild. So thirdly, designing solutions that matter. Uh, we did a big piece of systems mapping. So as I said, across the piece, it wasn't just looking uh, at schools or including alternative provision, it was really across the piece of, of professionals, uh, children, young people, um, and the community. And allowing people to put themselves in the shoes of children and young people in school. So what does it feel like to be a young person uh, living in Newham, you know, breathing in Newham, being educated in Newham? And when, what do those journeys look like for those children and young people? And I think from that point, people start to really, really empathize um, and understand what it might be like when they put themselves in, in those shoes. And so we built up um, a number of very strong and uh, evidence-based solutions to these key challenges, which I'm happy to talk through at another time, but they really focus on things like a co-location of a multidisciplinary team for those vulnerable young people that need further support. Uh, thinking about things like navigators for both young people, but also for parents who, um, who, who sometimes um, don't understand how systems work, you know, struggle, particularly if English isn't their first language, to navigate the system, looking at a data model of sharing and analysis and, and how we use it to make decisions, um, building up communities of practice for professionals, so thinking about what professionals need in order to do their jobs better, not just in terms of education, but how they build that pastoral support, those trusted relationships, having open and honest and transparent conversations with young people. And then looking at an enhanced offer within schools to help build the capacity and capability around vulnerability. So finally, um, the importance of action and accountability, sorry. And um, so often in local governments, I think we conduct review after review after review, um, which are often done by consultants coming in and then stepping away, um, you know, then the heavy sets of recommendations that are put forward, but without or very little thought really around resource, money, um, and the right governance. So ensuring that there are the right accountability structures in place to actually see those through. And I think that's where a lot of these pro programs or change programs or transformation programs get stuck is because there's not the right team, the right resource and the right governance to actually take it forward. Uh, so these types of programs really require drive, a set of ambitious and committed people across the system and a, a, a real deep understanding of the outcomes so how do we achieve what we want at the end of the uh, end of the day? And how do we get from A to B? What does that journey look like? So in conclusion, Inuam, we are, uh, I think at the very start of our journey, we've done a lot of in-depth discovery work and actually allowed ourselves uh, the time to do that, particularly I think with, with COVID um, and, and the effects of that, you know, um, a lot of things have had to change, include our, including our daily lives, and that includes for children and young people. So in the process, we're building an inclusive economy of education providers. So education providers that are all equal, they coexist in partnership, um, and they operate seamlessly for the benefits of children and young people. That's really our goal at the end of the day. And this isn't just uh, to provide high quality education or curriculum provision, but as others have said, um, this is really integral for pastoral support, instilling um, genuine life skills, and then the specialist support where required for those young people that are particularly vulnerable. And I think most importantly, as we're doing some very strong thinking about how parents and carers can be partners in their child's education. And this comes back to the conversation about the community so that we build a better systemic and relational model, which comes around the whole family and therefore, and then 
ensures better outcomes for the child. So thank you very much. Kirsten, thank you for that, it was fascinating. Um, you know, throughout my experience of, of engaging with school leaders, which goes right back to being a local authority councillor when local authorities used to really run schools a long time ago, I've always noticed quite big differences, you know, between teacher, head teachers, uh, school leaders, governing bodies in terms of uh, the issue of the degree to which they want to get involved in the wider community or, or be more narrowly focused. And equally, the issue of the degree to which they want to really work to minimise the number of exclusions and, and, and or to share with other schools the responsibility of, of, of ensuring that you keep as many children as possible in the system. Given those that variety of dispensate those those varieties of attitudes, have you how have you engaged all your school leaders in this process? Or in the end, if you had to recognise that some just aren't up for this agenda in the same way as others? Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for the question. I think um, everybody will recognise that there will be those individuals that just don't want anything to do with anything, and you know, you you kind of I think at at one level have to respect that. Um, however, I think in Newham, you know, although that, that situation uh, does exist, sort of very limited, I think, you know, when, when we um, considering the re-engineering of education and, and what that looks like across Newham, there are different ways to engage different people, as you know. So, you know, we'd start off with the, you know, general, we, we're speaking to different committees and subgroups and boards and so on, um, raising awareness uh, to the work. But really, we want those schools and and not i think also the thing is many people tend to focus on head teachers when actually head teachers might not be the right people to be in the room obviously they need to be included and considered and, and consulted but head teachers themselves might say actually my deputy or my lead for you know vulnerable children my lead for exclusions or whatever might might be the right person to be in the room because those are the the sort of operational day-to-day -day grind people that can actually take some some of it um, move it forward and create change and actually create a um you know a network of people that that have this drive almost like a movement of people so i think that's that's a way to do it um, the other thing that i've also felt that's um, been quite successful is is obviously trust building now, you know, if, you, if you're coming in uh, to a local authority or a new, you know, people look at you with suspicion, uh, particularly from schools and think, well, what, what's going to change now? You know, what is the local authority trying to do now? And next year we have another review and the next year we have another review. And I think that trust piece is so important. So that one-on-one -on -one communication I've felt has been really successful. You know, um, in COVID, obviously, we haven't been able to meet face-to-face, -face, which I prefer, but having sort of telephone calls or uh, virtual conferences and just conversations about how are things are working within specific schools, you know, what works, what are the challenges and how, you know, you, we sort of can come uh, with a more supportive role in terms of, uh, of building and, um, you know, and helping change happen has, has really worked. And I think it's, it's turned some of those sort of, uh, you know, um, I think individuals that might think, oh, here we go again to go, actually, maybe this is an opportunity for us to get involved. Maybe we can be at the forefront of this and be trailblazers um, in this. So that's, that's really exciting to see uh, that, that kind of mind or mindset shift, but um, also the, the willingness to want to change and get involved, you know, keeping the child and the young person as central to the conversations. Great, thank you, Kirsten. I can see from the, from the from the clock that we're only going to have time for one kind of question for the whole panel after we've heard from James. But I'm going to tell you what the question is now, so you've got a chance to think about it, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll come to James last when I ask the question. So, the question I'll ask at the end is: if you were talking to somebody who was a governor of a school that had not really taken this agenda of wider community engagement, thinking more holistically about children had not really taken that seriously, what would be the first thing that you would suggest? What might be the way in which you might get a school that hadn't got the confidence about doing this stuff to start to think about how they could play a more expansive role? So that's the question I'm going to ask everybody, but I'll ask you that when I've heard from our final speaker, uh, James Kempton, who's been chair of Oldham Opportunity Area, one of 12 local interventions across England which are focused on driving social mobility. And he's been doing that since 2017. He also chairs Oldham School Improvement Body, Oldham Learning. He's a former chair of Ofsted and former council leader in Islington. James also chairs the anti-poverty charity, the Cripplegate Foundation, 
and is a trustee. How do you have the time to do all this, James, uh, of the Youth Theatre Company 3? Over to you. Thanks very much. I particularly want to talk about place in this conversation because I think we, we've alluded to it, but maybe not focused enough on it. Um, but just a couple of general points before I do that. I mean, the first thing that, that really strikes me in the conversation is, is in the way in which we're, we're harking back to, to a policy debate we had 20 years ago when we were talking about every child matters and you know the, the five dimensions of that. We were talking about full service schools. Um, and I think, um, you know, as a historian, it, it's as well that we look back as well as just look at the immediate crisis. So, so this isn't a, this isn't a new conversation um, in some respects, but clearly we're, we're revisiting it in a new context. And I think the other point probably to make is that after after ten years of austerity, you know, it's clear that the state is back. So actually, this is a conversation about the role of education or rethinking education in the context of a, of a bigger, more muscular, more active state. Um, and I think that that is about it gives us a, a, a perhaps a broader palette to have this conversation around them than we might have done in, in, in previous times. So I think those are important issues to put on on the table at this stage. But in terms of place, um, I mean, opportunity areas are, are a bit of a... Uh, a dipping the toe of, of the Department for Education, really, into different ways of working. And they're a challenge both to the notion that, um, that there's a one-size-fits-all uh, policy prescription from the centre that makes sense for every, everyone everywhere. But they're also a bit of a challenge locally to the idea that, um, that our children are the children on the role of a school, uh, and actually that the notion... Uh, that we would say is that um, that the children that we're focused on are the children of the place. Um, so actually, one of the things we do in Oldham, as we do in our, the other opportunity areas, is looking at a prescription for uh, for the for the children of the of the area, sort of irrespective of where they go to school. Some of them go to school in in oasis uh, schools. Some of them go to school in community schools. Some there's a whole range of of different. Uh, constitutional and organisational arrangements in older, but actually the thing that the kids have in common is, is that they live in that locality. And I think what COVID has perhaps taught us with our discussion of our national lockdowns appropriate, our local lockdowns appropriate, we've had this big discussion about, about place and policy making. You know, was it right for, for Cornwall to be in a national lockdown when they had a low incidence of COVID? And was it right for the Northwest um, to be uh, treated in, in tier three or tier four and what support? That's been a debate about place. And in a sense, for me, that's been a really good, good opening up of, of this notion about how we engage with, with the fact that different parts of the country have different needs. Um, and those needs are often based around um, disadvantage and different sets of circumstances. And that feels to me like one of the right ways to, to be having our debate about rethinking education. So I thought I'd just talk about one example of this, which is the work we've done in Oldham to, uh, to focus around um, mental health and well-being of children. Um, and in, in a sense, that's, a, that's been proved to be uh, an issue of the moment over the past year. Um, but we came to this through Oldham Opportunity Area by talking to young people um, who, who said to us, Actually, if you're coming in to improve the quality of education in Oldham, one of the things we think you, you need to do is attend to our happiness and well-being because we feel there's a lot of uh, stresses and strains on us that are impacting on our learning and we want something to be done about that. So actually ahead of the government's green paper on transforming um, uh, children and adult mental health services, um, ahead of what we've seen in the pandemic, um, we, we set up at the behest of young people in Oldham, um, a system which supports 99% uh, of schools have got a dedicated lead who's been trained, who's supported by uh, a, a psychological service, um, they have uh, mental health plans, um, and a whole range of uh, brokerage support so that the kids who, who schools find it difficult to support but actually don't meet the requirements for the CAM service can, can access services um, in a more targeted way. That feels like a fantastic thing to do, and why wouldn't you want to do it? Well, it's not the classic thing you'd expect as a school improvement initiative to have come out of the DfE, but actually, nor was it a service that was put in place by schools under their own steam, uh, because actually it makes sense to do it on a community-wide basis. So actually, there is, there is something in that about place. But there's also something in that, I'd say, about the voice of, 
young people. And actually, one of the things that disturbs me most about the past year, we've talked, you know, we've listened to lots and lots of people and lots and lots of experts, but we haven't, we found it quite hard to listen to the voice of the child and the way in which that the young people have been impacted by this. So actually, it's great that we're all talking about this today, but actually the voice of the child is missing from this conversation. And I think it's you know, it's worth just putting that putting that marker down. So for me, this the whole issue about um, about place rests on this notion of where you see the problem from sort of affects about about how you see the problem and what it is. So if you see it from the center, you're thinking about the importance of, of universal entitlements. You're talking about you know, getting away from postcode lotteries. You're thinking about um, exam systems where, where standards are universal, um, whether the teacher marks them or whether they're marked by an exam board. And if you see it from a different place like Oldham, you see, uh, you see the importance of matching resource to need. Uh, you see the importance of um, the, the level of learning loss that young people are experiencing and the way, way in which that is impacting on, on how they feel it's right for their school experience to be assessed at, uh, you know, at 16 or 18. Um, and you know, as of today, there's uh, 1,100 young people um, self-isolating in Oldham uh, because of the levels of COVID, which have been immensely high in Oldham as they are in other parts of the Northwest. And that's so different to the experience of many other parts of the country. So, so from where you see it is how you perceive the problem and that in a, in a way affects how you address that, that question. So we are in a bit of a topsy-turvy world here. We're in a topsy-turvy world where schools have been feeding children and where parents have been supporting young people's learning. And that, that, that is good in a way because it forces us to think differently about, about some of the things which we had, um, we had thought were, were fixtures in the past. So I think for me, the final point to make really is I think it's worth rethinking that social contract between schools and parents um, about what, what schools can do to support parents to be uh, you know, the first educators, the home, the home educators. It's important to think about that, that question of digital learning. We, we've spent a lot of time angsting about the lack of digital kit at home to enable young people to, to learn. But actually for every home that, can't, that doesn't have a computer or connectivity or space to learn for children, it's a, it's a home where the parents aren't online either and are not accessing the world. Um, so that it's, a, it's a, a window to that level of, of inequality and unfairness and the way that that impacts on lives much more generally. James, thank you for that. And I'm very taken by your point about every child matters. And I, I, I completely agree with you, actually. And uh, I, I'm moving into work in the health area. And what's kind of interesting is health policy has now arrived at a consensus around integration and a focus on population health, which is a kind of every patient or every person matters equivalent for the health service, moving away from a focus on so much of a focus on the acute sector. In terms of that, what is, if we were wanting to have Every Child Matters 2.0, as it were, what would be the one lesson do you think that we would want to learn from what didn't work the first time the government that I was helping to support on uh, 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 developed that programme? I mean, it's always really important to learn from from those experiences, isn't it? Um, I think I think probably the the where where I would begin this conversation in two point zero um, is is around um, is not around structures, but actually around outcomes. So actually, folk, and I think what we got wrong before every child matters. It, it all became about um, how do you get how do you get service how do you get service A uh, co-located with service B, and how do you manage the workforce implications for that, um, uh, and how do you get people through the front door of it? Those things are all really important, but actually, it's about aligning the objectives of different services around good outcomes. Um, so we we would all say that actually getting young people in into meaningful well well paid um, jobs with a future is a really important thing for us to do. Um, but, I, but actually, uh, we, we're, we're not currently having that discussion um, because it seems to be person X's problem over there, but the person Y's problem is, is only to get them the right, the right GCSE results that enable them to, act, to get across the threshold into that. Or, employer, or an employer's job is to employ, to employ X number of apprentices, but actually without much thought about where they go next. So, so actually 
breaking down that that sense of um, we all have a bit of it to actually we've all got a part to play in delivering a common goal I think is where I would go next. Great. Well, you know, this has been a fascinating and inspiring conversation and I wish we had a lot more time, but we've only got three or four minutes. So I'm going to ask each of you in turn, starting with you, Joy, to answer that question I posed a few minutes ago, which is if you were speaking to someone on a governing body who really felt their school could be more ambitious in terms of community engagement and a more holistic approach to, to young people, what would be the one thing that you would say to them as a starting point or one idea which might help them maybe to convince other governors to be more ambitious in what their school do, uh, did? So Joy, I'll turn to you first. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm going to be cheeky because I'm just going to go back to what was just said around Every Child Matters just very quickly, because I think one of the things that could have would make the difference, because in fact, it is what happened is that everybody matters. You can't see the child separately. And I think that's a bit of thinking. Anyway, in terms of the governing body, funnily enough, this is what we actually had an experience of ourselves. So when we took on on the academies, we needed to think about whether or not we held on to the governance framework that was already there or introduced something new, which is where we are now. But back in 2004 or five, that was very different. We very gently moved our governing body into what we called academy councils and we had the governance nationally. And there's loads to say about that. But what that did uh, was to remove, uh, and I know this is not possible for every school, but it removed the discussions, the dry, awful um, kind of brain-beating conversations around finance and HR and the property and the roof and the goodness knows whatever else. And actually, it took those away because they were belonging to the central but the national body and gave the group of people who were local, who we didn't want to lose because they'd been with that school forever um, and, and committed to it, but gave them the opportunity to talk about education what do they really want for their children um, and indeed what do they want for their own children and interestingly of course out of that conversation when you don't have to think about all those hieroglyphics that nobody understands or at least ways people who aren't in it every day understand it is it is is values character huge focus on character and values and what are we doing about ensuring, you know, the conversation we've had here about good citizenship, about global citizenship, about things that matter. So when you close your eyes at night and you wish away for your children, what do you really want? Do you want them to go to Oxford and Cambridge or do you want them to live a good life, to be good human beings? And that's what came out. And as a result of that, we built around that, the, you know, the engagement of, of how you live that in your local community because it's not about taking them away from their community, but about how you live that out in community. And that's the conversation that we had. And slowly we got them involved in the community hub. And then as a result of that, actually the Academy Council became the hub council because it's about the whole life around the school. So Brilliant. we've had yeah, great experience of that and people have enjoyed it. Thanks, Joe. that's really powerful. Uh, Joan. In 21st century modern Britain, school leadership must embrace the communities in which it's located if it's going to have an effective uh, um, impact on pupil outcomes, because school leaders need to take account of how that community context is having a positive impact or otherwise on the young people that they are serving and how they will reach out in the community to give support to, to those communities. Every day in our school, 1,600 children come from 1,600 very different homes, but they're living in a locality and they are giving, their, their voices tell us what's going on. Schools know far sooner than many services about issues in the community that are uh, either undermining or promoting pupils, welfare, well-being, and ability in the future to become effective citizens. And I think school leadership in the 21st century has got to be about understanding its community and learning from the, from the community how their strategic plans for the improvement of pupils' um, outcomes must take account of that community. Thank you, Joan, very powerful. Kirsten. 
Thank you, Matthew. And uh, so I would just build on, I think, what Joan said. Uh, schools are often the first uh, ports of call for many different things going on in a child's life, whatever that might be. And I think, um, and back to Joy's point about, you know, both made really, really clear points just about thinking, you know, through um, what we want for the children and young people, you know, what those governing bodies foresee as that kind of vision. Because when you start thinking, like Joey said, about your own children or your grandchildren or godchildren, whatever that might be, you know, those things that you think about for them is exactly, you know, should be what we're thinking about for all children. And I just say also adding to that um, in terms of sort of governing bodies, really good for, um, to kind of encourage schools that have good practice and know what works. And, and most schools will have something that they're really proud of or, or are very strong at, encouraging them to come to the forefront and share how that works within their school. You know, not to be closed and kind of, well, this is ours, we're not sharing it. And not even just sharing within the local borough or the local area. You know, we need to think bigger. We need to think, you know, as, as new. Now we're having a number of conversations across Northeast London and East London about how we work together to think about the alternative provision that exists across because there are a number of young children now that are young people being um, placed out of borough. So how do we think about that wider picture? How do we put good practice and what works at the forefront and allowing schools to kind of take responsibility and be those trailblazers? Because I think very often if you're proud of something and you can share it, you tend to take more of a, a stand and actually being at the forefront of developing something new. And James, finally to you. Thank you, Kirsten. That's great. Uh, James, finally to you, if you were wanting to empower a governor to say we should see our reference point as the place, not just the institution. Uh, how, how do you think they might best win that argument in the governing body? I mean, this is less about what you do and it's how you think, isn't it? This is about culture. So I think the challenge is this. Um, so why do we have a breakfast club? Is it because the kids are only hungry in term time and they're not hungry the rest of it? Why do we have free school meals? Is it, is it because actually it's important to feed kids in school so they do really well in the, you know, and they're not disruptive after lunch? Or actually is hunger a more pressing problem? So I think if you frame an issue, and if you frame the issue like that, then it helps you to think more widely about some of the things which go on in school, which actually um, are important in the school context, but actually they're much more important in the wider context. So, so how do you change the hunger? Is, is changing the, the kids' hunger a challenge for the school? Is something that school, a place that school wants to be active in? Um, and I think it is. And I think probably because teachers are, are some of the best advocates for young people that we have. Um, so I think changing, changing the way we think about the problem has to be the start of this. Thank you, James. Well, sadly, we're out of time. I'm out of time too. This is my last event that I've chaired as CEO of the RSA after about, I think I worked at about 400. And it's been wonderful that the last event I've chaired has been as inspirational as this. I couldn't have wanted for a better way of signing out. Thank you uh, all on uh, the panel, Joy, Joan, Kirsten, James, for making uh, this such a special event. A reminder, this series is part of the RSA's new education program, which is working across a range of projects and partnerships with the mission to make education after COVID fairer than it was before. If you're interested in knowing more about the research, please do get in touch. You'll find contact details in the chat box to speak to a member of our team. And if you have an interest in the topics we've been debating across this series and experiences you want to share, please do join the continuing conversation on Twitter at hashtag RSA Education. So thank you again, panel, and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.